When starting my career, I wish I'd have known. That integrity is the most important thing and that vanity doesn't matter. The power of networks. That rest is important, not just as rest, but also to improve the quality and quantity of your work. I wish I would have known more about how to manage people and how to, you know, help get the best out of other people. I kind of wish I'd known more about management. That you should always follow what you really love. Welcome back to part two of our Series 5 Best Bits compilation episode. Today you'll hear from Mo Gaudat, the former Chief Business Officer of Google X and founder of One Billion Happy, as well as Andy Davis, founder of 10x10, as they talk candidly about turning grief and loss into positive driving forces in their life and work. You'll also hear about topics that are top of the agenda for many businesses right now, D&I, mental health and well-being, social impact and sustainability, as we hear first-hand insights from business pioneers who are very passionate about these topics. These include Roberta Luca, co-founder of Bossa Studios, who shares her experience of dealing with burnout. We also talk to Grace Beverly, CEO of Shreddy and Tala, as she shares how she deals with the pressure of being a 24-year-old CEO of two multi-million pound businesses. Brett Wigdort's OBE, who was the founder of Teach First and the co-founder and CEO of Tiny, shares where his passion for education comes from. And Juliet Davenport, founder of Good Energy, shares how we can be part of the solution when it comes to sustainability. And last, but by no means least, Gary Stewart, founder and CEO of Founder Tribes, on dealing with racism and discrimination as a gay black man. I hope you'll find their perspectives and mentorship as inspiring and thought-provoking as I did. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of Series 5's Best Bits. It was fascinating and often touching talking to our 40-minute mentors about the things that motivate them, particularly in the case of Mo Gaudat and Andy Davis, who both turned experiences of tragedy and personal loss into positive motivation for their life and work. My story is very particular, if you want. I mean, I I spent seven years at Google, uh, head of emerging markets. uh, So I opened half of Google's businesses worldwide, close to like 49% or something like that. And then uh, I, um, I, I went to Google X as chief business officer, spent five years in what I call the best job on the planet. Uh, so chief business officer, I would probably say is even more fun than CEO of Google X because, uh, you know, basically it allowed me to face the world as well, not just inside if you want. And then uh, two years into my career at Google X, sadly, I lost my wonderful son. And Ali was everything to me, to be honest. I mean, he was my son, my best friend. He was uh, my coach in many, many, many ways. I mean, this young man was so wise. He was so wise. He taught me so much. And when he was 16, I remember I used to think to myself, when I grow older, I want to be like Ali. And so this pillar in my life leaves us. He was 21 and a half at the time. He leaves the world due to medical malfunction, a very simple surgical operation. He had an appendix inflammation and the surgeon did five mistakes in a row. Four hours later, we lose Hali and, uh, and I find myself in that sort of moment of truth, if you want. And, and in that moment of truth, I had to make a choice of, so what happens now? Do I hit my head against the wall for 27 years? And then on his deathbed, he's still not going to be back on my deathbed. He's still not going to be back. Or do I try to do something with this? And, and so it hit me very strongly on day four uh, after he left that I should probably quickly document what he taught me, what we developed together. So we were a very good team on the topic of happiness because I'm the engineer with the mathematics and rigor, if you want. And he was the heart that knew everything in- instinctively. And so 17 days after he died, I found myself writing. I, I wrote nonstop. I actually wrote 600 pages about the topic of happiness in four and a half months. And then of course the editors and the publishers, you know, wanted it to be a little more manageable. So we reduced it to like 365 or something, but basically 
uh, solve for happy was an engineer's view of happiness. And I wrote the book with two intentions. One is for me to document what I learned from my guru, if you want. Uh, and for the second was to spread his message at the time to a target of 10 million people. I chose 10 million as, you know, an ambition to say if I could get his message to 10 million people through six degrees of separation in 200 years, Ali will be everywhere and part of everyone, which was his dream, really, uh, that he told his sister before he left our planet, that, that he was everywhere and part of everyone. And so I wrote and wrote and wrote, and then something happened uh, that's bigger than marketing and bigger than, uh, you know, all the knowledge I knew at Google to spread the message. A few things happened, and six weeks into uh, the launch of the book, my message became viral reached 110 million people in the first eight weeks. And, uh, and so I found myself questioning uh, if I should continue to create more artificial intelligence and more robotics and more uh, technology, which I've done for 25 years of my life, or if there is something more important. And so as a small team, uh, we were five at the time, one billion happy became a reality. Uh, we, we decided we will grow the the target from 10 million happy at the time to 1 billion happy. I remember I announced that in Amsterdam in November 2017, and it became clear that I needed to change my ability to do things. And so I left Google in March 2018. Wow, what a story. And I, I mean, I think anyone listening to this, just the, the way you've dealt with such a traumatic experience and, and grief of, of losing your son in, in those sorts of circumstances, I think is is beyond inspiring, really. There are probably people listening to this that maybe themselves may be struggling with grief at this time, you know, given everything that's going on with the world. Can you tell us a bit about kind of why you decided to, what is often a private grieving process? What was it that made you take that, that leap of faith to kind of be public about this and spread this message? Because, I mean, it's an incredible thing you're doing. But I, I just wondered, was there a moment that, that you just felt you've got to do it? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if... You know, you, you can always tell a story backwards and say, hey, you know, I thought this way and I built that and I did this. And that's not true at all. All I recall is two moments. One, one moment which really anchored us in, in the truth. You know, when Ali left our world, medical malpractice, he was here in Dubai. I was a very senior Googler. Huh? I mean, I, I at the time was running Google X as a chief business officer as uh, with my base in Dubai, I had been in Dubai for 10 years at the time, or maybe ten, nine years as a very senior Googler. And so the government officials called me at the time and said, we heard what happened. I mean, most of them were close contacts. I worked very closely with the government, you know, on, uh, on the internet and technology in general and innovation. And so they said, look, you know, we will get to the bottom of this. This will not go unnoticed. And would you mind if we performed an autopsy on Ali's body? And so his mother was next to me. His mother is an amazing, amazing woman, pure feminine wisdom. And I said, Nibel, would you, would you be okay if they performed an autopsy on Ali's body? And she raised her head slowly, looked at me with teary eyes and said, would it bring Ali back? And would it bring Ali back is not just a question, okay? It's the truth summarized in a few words, that there are sometimes things that life throws at us that are not going to change. Do what you want. Hit your head against the wall for 27 years. Nothing's going to change. He's not going to come back. Okay. And, you know, of course, for someone like me, who's a very senior executive, who's paid handsomely for solving problems that seem to be unsolvable, that's not something you're used to. You're not used to the idea of, I can't change this. But yes, there are things we cannot change. Okay. And, and the idea here is, you know, if you come from my background and my culture and, you know, my Islamic upbringing and so on, we, we have a concept that we call committed acceptance. It's not surrender. Okay. It's acceptance of the new baseline of your life based on the reality that you can't change it. Okay. Married to commitment and commitment is Despite the fact that I can't bring Ali back, I still can make my life and the lives of others better despite his absence, okay? As a matter of fact, because of his absence, which is really, really something to think about. And so when, when Nibel said, will it bring Ali back? I had been struggling at the time 
with my brain attacking me heavily for the first four days, telling me you should have driven him to another hospital. Okay. And I have a very simple process in the way I deal with my brain as again, as a, as a, you know, committed happiness practitioner, which is I allow my brain to only give me joyful thoughts or useful thoughts. Okay. And the, the, the thought you should have driven him to another hospital, though very true in the heart of a grieving parent is actually not a thought that we can do anything about. So it's not something that I can act upon. And so I started to ask my brain to give me a useful thought. All right. And when Nibel said, will it bring Ali back? Uh, I realized that the only thing that can be useful is to do something in the absence of Ali. Rather than stay in grief, can I somehow do something with him gone already? And so four days later, when that happened, my brain started to go like, okay, maybe not drive him to another hospital. What if you shared his model with the world? What if you made them know him as you know him, love him as you loved him? You know, and, and maybe, maybe, you know, that would be a good way to honor him. I find it fascinating that you were doing something that you really like you had a passion for, but you stepped away from it when it was clearly going really well. And, and that clearly speaks to this, this desire that you have to solve bigger problems. Where do you think that comes from? Is this stemming from like something in your childhood? Is that just always the way you've been? I'd love to learn a bit more about that. So as quite a lot of people know, I grew up poor and um, I think um, didn't really grow up much. So I'm not someone who needs a lot. But I think um, I've always been around problems. I think growing up poor, you realize that the problem is poverty, right? And then there's a few other problems in around it. It's access to jobs, it's education, it's not not having things in the house. Like if it's food at times or whatever it is, um, electricity running out. You realize actually to to get to the point where these these things that happen, these problems that occur, and these, this pain doesn't exist, you have to maybe maybe generate wealth for enough resource to stop that happening. Right, for a better future for, per se, especially in this, this side of the world where money is oxygen out in this, in this side of the world, to be honest. Without money, a lot of things just fall apart. So um, this isn't like um, in several places, right? Several places in the world, such as where I'm from in Sierra Leone, where my family's still extremely poor. My, I've got friends here who are poor still. And then on top of that, we've got all these um, healthcare issues. And that, so I grew up a twin, and my twin brother passed away when I was 17. And I remember... Him passing, I don't think it was the first, uh, absolutely fine, right? And I think it was the first time I'd experienced like that. And that was the first funeral I'd ever, I ever went to. I remember thinking the whole time, and this came from nowhere, of course, but it was like, hey, if we had private healthcare, we had, we could afford better healthcare, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Which actually doesn't, which isn't necessarily true. Now, now I know things in the world because people, people unfortunately pass away every day, regardless of their financial position or the resources that they have access to. But we do know that better resources can, um, can help. So, I think that partly fueled the fire. It was like actually needs to be working on things which can move the needle and really change the world. Wow. It's it's amazing how many people I've spoken to, how many amazing entrepreneurs, actually some of that inspiration for, for the way they are comes from moments of trauma or tragedy. I obviously didn't know that. Um, that that's really, really sad, but, but clearly has given you fire in the belly to do a lot of the things that you've done. When you look back at, at those early ventures that you, you talked about just a minute ago, what are some of the, the lessons you learned from them that you, you now use today? Now that you're a very successful investor, entrepreneur, but are there still things from, from those early days that you take into your role now? Sure. So um, I don't think I'm very successful yet. To me, it's still day one. And I, I still wake up every day and bust my ass and work 24-7. Um, and like I fear the younger, I fear the 19-year-old Andy Davis, like running and catching up with me and beating me at anything. And, <laughs> that keeps um, you on your toes, right? It keeps, keeps yeah, you keeps honest. Me, it, keeps me, it keeps me on my toes. And I just stay hungry every single day, 24-7. And I know that until me, myself, my family escape, like poverty and, and we have all these healthcare issues in the world solved as well. I'm not done. I'm very far from done. So um, I think lessons always work on big problems. That was what I learned, say, with the football thing at Prempica. Um, going on to do a school application system, applied. I remember I got some investment from Telefonica and how old was I? I think I was 22 or 23. And there was a lot of startups around um, in our building that they had funded and stuff. And they were bringing us, they were connecting us with different people to talk to. And I think everyone wanted to, to present with their best foot forward. But sometimes what that meant was, presenting with vanity as opposed to the, the actual reality of where you, where you are. And 
I just learned that vanity doesn't pay. And I learned it really early. But like it was almost late because it, it probably cost us in the venture of our progress. It was like, oh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing well. We're, we have all this interest. We're, we're, we've got all these institutions we're talking to. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is the only thing that matters. And um, that's why I learned really early that vanity just doesn't pay. You have to focus on the actual reality of the actual business. And um, it's like the whole vanity and profit thing, right? Like you have to, um, you have to really just focus on the business itself. I think, and then going forward, I learned that integrity is really important. I think even partly after that, like a year or so after uh, going on to another venture, I think I then messed up with Woodin so well. <laughs> and couldn't be well, and they were going really fast. And these what, things. What and, was um, the venture? What was it? Notified, it was a um, education messaging product. And I think in a few months, we had gotten to that 56 institutions. And I, t- I took a lot of lessons from the previous start where we had all these conversations, but we didn't have anything signed and it was a B2B product and there was a long sales cycle with a large price for the product and all these things. So that's something lighter, but I took all the right lessons of how to get adoption with these customers and then ended up in a bunch of institutions. We, were very, we worked our ass off, but we were very grateful that they, um, they loved the product and we did a lot of listening. But then I think where we messed up, where I messed up, it wasn't a we, it was where I messed up, was with my co-founders around, I think two things. One was, again, even equity, all these conversations around equity and not just splitting things equally. And I thought, oh, because I put money into the business, I had been full-time for a few months before them. They came full-time after we got an investment. And so maybe rightfully, but I think in, in the grand scheme of things, none of these things matter. You just have to, like, do you want to go on the ride for the next 10 years with these people? And if so, does a few percentage points make a difference? That was one thing. And then two is just integrity. I think I learned a big lesson in integrity when it's like, hey, actually, when you're talking about your previous experience and work and successes or failures, just to always be honest and not to keep anything hidden because things always come up and everyone was doing it. But um, it was, you, could, you don't want to ever look bad to anyone. But actually, sometimes honesty is just best. And people just appreciate really honest people. And I was really young, and I'm so glad I learned those lessons then. And it just taught me to be like a better human, a better person to everybody. Ask any founder, and they'll tell you about the incredible pressure that comes with growing a successful business. It's so important, therefore, to look after your mental health. Here, Roberta Luca, co-founder of Bossa Studios and host of one of my favourites, the Hypercurious podcast, and Grace Beverly, CEO of Shreddy and Tala, both share some valuable insights into finding balance and dealing with pressure on their entrepreneurial journeys. I wanted to talk a bit about mental health. It's obviously something particularly in the past year with, with the national lockdowns that has, has affected us all. And, and on your YouTube channel, you've spoken a lot about it and, and the loneliness that comes with being an entrepreneur, which is as a solo founder, something I know about, having worked at a kitchen table in Clapham, speaking to the walls for the first two years, what has helped you through the difficult periods of your career, those, those lonely times? And have you got any advice for any founders that are feeling that way at the moment? Yes, totally. I did speak up and these were, so I talked about anxiety and loneliness on my YouTube channel and these were the most difficult videos to be made. I remember because I was like, do I share that with people? Am I going to be that vulnerable? Uh, will people think that I'm like, you know, I have no friends, you know, all sorts of things that go into your mind about what people are going to think about that. But I'm so glad that I did because I had so many people contacting me and DMing me and saying, oh my God, I feel the same. I'm so happy that you shared and etc. And it is a disease of the now, right? We are isolated. We are feeling cravings of connections. You know, looking at people through, through screens is not the same thing. Th- this research that was done that basically when you're connecting with someone face to face, you can read the, the, the face of the person and you can see the wrinkles of their smile and that creates trust. And when we're doing this, it's like, there's no amazing Wi-Fi connection that I will be able to see the crinkle of your eyes, right? So those things really, really matter. And it makes us feel even even more lonely, right? So I, I think it's, uh, it is part of the process, what we're living right now. And it's, it's about going back to the basics. I've learned to be, you know, way more vulnerable to people, but I learned how to really take the time to say, I, I'm going to call my mom today. I'm going to call my sister. I'm going to give enough time to my best friend. 
you know, all of those things that really feed your soul from a, from a connection and human perspective, we need to start opening time of our days to do that. Otherwise, we will feel worse, right? And it's a, it, it's a vicious circle because the, the less you connect, the, the more afraid you feel that, you know, when you share people, will people listen to you? So there's all sorts of things that go in your head. I learned something in therapy that was really helpful that we have uh, three emotional systems in our brain. One is the drive, the other one is the threat, and the other one is the soothing system. And a lot of entrepreneurs stay a lot of time between the, the drive and the threat because they are what creates the dopamine and then creates the cortisol for you to, you know, I'm always in fight or flight moment. I'm always driving really, really fast. And you totally neglect the path of the soothing, right? Which is a very important pathway for your brain and a very important thing for human beings. You need to feel the oxytocin. You need to feel connected to something bigger, to spiritually or, or you know, with the with your family and friends. And I think that side of the things are things that we neglect as entrepreneurs. And, and that's the side that it's the abusing blocks for you to be a better human being. Yeah, I, I think so many people listening to this will be inspired by what I was saying. And, and I hope we'll, we'll take some of this on board. And it's funny, I, I, you know, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful wife, a wonderful daughter, many friends, a great team, you know, and I'm lucky to have lots of clients candidates that I, I treat as friends, but there have still been moments in my, you know, eight years of running JVM where I felt incredibly lonely. And it's actually me. It's not them. I know they'd be there for me, but it's that kind of founder mentality which is completely wrong of, I've just got to, I've got to deal with this myself. I've just got to get my head down and work through it. And I don't want to burden anyone with, with the stresses I'm feeling. And it's amazing how it can kind of build up. And I found myself from opening up more, being more vulnerable, actually, there's so much support out there. And it, it really does lift your mood and make you feel better. So I think it's great we're, we're able to talk more openly about these sorts of things. And thank you for, for sharing your, your experience. I wanted to add that, you know what, there's, there's another element to that as well, that we, we believe that we have to do, we have to be entrepreneurs 100% of the time so that we're going to be successful. And actually, when you don't do that, when you are spending some of your time doing something completely different. So over the years, I every time that I felt like burnout or loneliness or whatever, I did like stand-up comedy classes. I did improv theater. <laughs> I did like shoe design. You know, I started to, you know, do things that were completely unrelated to what I was doing the day-to-day. And you know what, James, the, the, the most impressive thing is that I remember the best light bulb moments that I had about being a bad entrepreneur were when I was in the middle of the stand-up comedy class. I wanted to come on and talk a bit about you being a CEO and a founder at, let's be honest, a very, very young age, and you've achieved so much already in such a short amount of time. There comes a lot of pressure with that. H how have you handled that? And what have been your kind of biggest learnings as a leader, as a CEO over the past few years of running your businesses? I'd say the biggest one, being completely honest, has been to forget about acting like a CEO or a leader or a founder or someone that people should look up to and respect and just do your job. Just like I started these businesses because I wanted to create these products and I wanted to create these concepts. And as soon as I started to try and act in a certain way and to try and, I guess, like come across as a CEO, as this founder, as someone that, you know, had done all of this, I realized that that was very much ingrained in insecurities rather than being ingrained in or kind of backed in need and reason. And instead, as soon as I was like, okay, well, these are the things that I'm good at product, brand, creative marketing, I'd say those are my areas, other areas, not my areas. So I need to find the people who can support me to do those things, whilst also making sure that we're not losing the vision by me being disconnected from those things. So for me, the most important thing has been understanding what my strengths are. And actually just that that doesn't need to look a certain way, that doesn't need to dress a certain way, that doesn't need to come across a certain way. I mean, I'm a 24 year old woman, there are like problems that are going to come with that in terms of the way people take me seriously, the way people think I actually know what I'm doing. 
And that's not my business. That's not my business at all. All that is my business is to do my job properly, to understand what we're doing, to bring in the right people, to support the right people and to lead, I guess, collaboratively to learn from, you know, I know that almost everyone within my business, and I can say this like hand on heart, almost everyone within my business will be better than me at their discipline. And that's the best way it can be. Because then if I can feed my vision into that, we can make amazing things happen. If I'm trying to keep that at a lower level so that I don't feel threatened or so that I don't, I feel like I'm still the founder and the CEO, then that's, that's ego. It's, it's not, it's not out of necessity. It's not out of something that the business needs to grow. So that for me has just been forget what these preconceived ideas of a CEO and a leader and a founder and a owner of these businesses is just do what you're good at, support people in doing what they're good at and collaborate with them to actually make things of value. I wanted to share an exciting opportunity for any fellow podcasters listening. During season five, I worked with a podcast production and promotion agency, Mags Creative, and they just launched their summer podcast academy a six-week learning and mentoring program. The program will offer industry insights, expert knowledge, and support for podcasters from underrepresented communities. I love this initiative, as it will help broaden representation in audio and showcase more diverse stories from all walks of life. So if you want to find out more, head over to their Instagram account at mags.creative, and entries close on July the 9th. So make sure you don't miss out. With tech progressing at such a fast rate, children are less the future and more and more becoming part of the present. So much so that Juliet Davenport, founder of Good Energy, has set up a youth board at her company to discuss and help solve major environmental issues. We also hear from Brett Wigdortz, OBE, the founder of Teach First and co-founder and CEO of Tiny, as he talks about how a good education should be available to everyone regardless of their social standing. And I think every business can start to be part of a solution. I mean, I think even if you're not directly sort of involved in this sector. So let's let's take let's take organizations who aren't directly involved. I think you can start to look at sustainability as your business as a whole. So start to think about your business as a circular business, as a positive regenerative business. So whether it's sort of, I'm sure people see BrewDog as a kind of iconic in the brewing sector for their kind of innovative communication and, and beer making, but also they've gone carbon negative and they're having a massive conversation about it and people are giving them a hard time about it. But it's great because it just brings awareness to the fact that they're not just a beer company. And I, so I think I think for companies that aren't directly in fact in, involved in the sector, be part of it. You don't you, just because you make beer or make clothes or make something else doesn't mean you can't be part of a conversation. Definitely. Then I think if you are directly uh, sort of involved in the sector, then you need to think as far forward as possible, because I think that's one of the things you see a lot of the existing utilities have really struggled with is thinking forward. And they've always been a bit slow, to be honest. I mean, the market's being disrupted a lot at the moment, but stay ahead. So uh, one of the things we've just appointed is we've appointed a youth board at Good to try and keep us thinking forward. And what's brilliant about, so there's school age kids, I think it's a range of between 12 and 18. They bring this simplicity of thought. They're super bright. God, they're amazingly bright. And also they bring this real diversity to us, sort of diversity of thought that we haven't necessarily got in the team immediately. And it's great because it just, it, they take a look at our website and go, why are you saying that? And it's just, it's just brilliant. So they just bring that, questioning. Yeah, fresh fresh eyes yeah yeah completely and yeah we'll see how it goes but we had our first board meeting last week and it was just really exciting and fun and interesting and and also sometimes when you lead a company quite difficult to make things change the bigger you get and actually having something like a youth board with that kind of external eye can really help a ceo to kind of move things forward I, lo- I absolutely love that. I, I, and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, founders listening to this 
sort of may, may steal that idea because I think uh, I think it gives you a, a, a totally new approach. And let's be honest, particularly when it comes to these important topics, the youth of today are, are incredibly well informed and, and really, really passionate about it. And ultimately, you know, they're, they're going to be leading the, the fight on this uh, in, in the next generation. So I think that's brilliant. My family are almost all teachers. So my mom's a teacher, my brother's a teacher, my aunts, my uncles. My dad should have been a teacher and he certainly loved any volunteer teaching he did. And I had some teachers that made a big difference in my life. I think it, it sort of comes from this sense of fairness I have in the world where, you know, I kind of have this view that especially in a society we all live in together as a community, you kind of want to make it as fair as possible. And it just seems if everyone doesn't have access to a great education, then you're just cutting out a whole swathe of humanity at, at the knees, basically. You're not giving them any sort of opportunities in life. So it's all a bit of a sham. And to me, education is one of these like sort of building blocks of a fair society that goes with, you know, maybe healthcare and, you know, in a food and, and ensuring people have shelter. And yet in so many societies, education is, is segregated by wealth or by other ways. And, and many children don't have the education they need to be successful. And I just always got it as just this real fairness issue is where I'm coming from. I would say when we so when we started Teach First, at first I thought I'd only do it for six months or a year. I was a management consultant at McKinsey and I got a like a one year leave of absence to get started. But I did believe actually from the very beginning it would be very big. And I remember telling people this should be the biggest graduate recruiter in the country. This should be massive. And I remember writing a paper about that in our first few months and people you know thought that was pretty amusing at the time. But I, I, I it sounds a bit naive almost now, but I definitely thought from the beginning it, it should be as big as it is now. It's interesting with Tiny, we're still in the early stages now and we're, um, you know, just two years in, but we definitely have global hopes and dreams. And from my work with Teach for All, which was helping get Teach First and Teach for America into, into about 50 countries around the world, I could see how these sort of models can really spread and can be very, you know, even with local changes, can really work in, in many places around the world, whether it's, you know, a big city like Mumbai or, you know, another country like Australia or any, any, anywhere, basically. I, I've spent some time in Ghana getting a Teach First program started, lots of countries around the world. And I think when we were first starting Teach for All, I didn't necessarily expect that this model could work as well as it does in so many societies around the world. But I think the model of getting great, talented people to work with children, which is, I think, another core part of Tiny, is just a universal idea that is uh, something that, that works anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about Tiny in, in a little while. But um, just, just last question on, on education. I guess it's a slightly bigger question, but, but how would you like to see the education system change in the UK? It's something that, like you, my parents were both teachers. Uh, my wife actually was on Teach First, so she spent a number of years in the education system. So I've seen it very closely and having obviously been through it and, and have some views on it. But I'd love your take because you know it probably better than most. Yeah, well, first, congratulations on marrying so well and uh, <laughs> marrying a, a Teach First alumni is definitely uh, something I'd recommend for anyone. But um, the second thing I'd say is, you know, I think the first thing is it, it's all about empowering the professionals. I think, you know, I, I used to have like very strong views on what makes a good school, what doesn't, different ways to structure the curriculum. I think as I visited more and more schools, actually, many of those views have weakened because I've seen truly outstanding world class schools where the, the children are getting amazing education that follow just so many different curriculums, so many different, you know, um, ethos and, and values based. You know, I think any school has to have a very strong values base. That's a very, very strong ethos. In many ways, I think a school is like an organization or like a business. Like, you know, if, if you don't know what you're trying to do with the kids, if you don't, you know, have a, a clear way to bring the whole community together under similar values, then you're not going to be successful. You know, that could be all sorts of different values and ethos to be successful. I, I don't know if there's one. And then the other thing is to really respect the talent in, in that organization, just like any business, you know, and I think the best schools have, you know, leaders who really respect the employees, the the teachers, the professionals and, and other other professionals in, the, in that school, you know, give them a lot of autonomy, manage them really well, support them well, you know, give them a lot of support, a lot of development opportunities. I think that's what the best schools all seem to have in common. I love talking to Juliet Davenport, founder of Good Energy. She's been one of the leading voices in climate change for almost 20 years. And here she talks about how we can all do our bit in the quest for net zero emissions. 
So I think if you think about the key areas that we interface with emissions, so, so one is in your home. So what can you do in your home straight off? And you use energy. So make sure you, if, if you're using energy, use green energy and use green energy from a real green supplier like good. Obviously, if you want to, if you want to go further than that, you can install solar panels or you can start thinking about heat pumps. So, so there's a kind of, there's a stage one and a stage two. Also make sure you've got as much energy efficiency as possible. So if you've got leaky windows, <laughs> sort those out, put some insulation <laughs> yeah. in, etc. The next thing is, so that's where I live in a sense. So I kind of, the living piece. Then the next one is how do I travel? How do I get from one place to the other? So sort of walk, cycle, public transport. But if you can't do those three, then if you're going to get in a car, try and make sure it's an EV. Because that's, there is now a wide range of EVs available. They're fantastic to drive. They're really simple to charge at home. Everything's becoming much easier so I think that would be the transport piece. And then finally, what you eat. So again, limit what you waste. There's something like waste food worldwide is, is the same emissions as a small country. And it's massive. So let's, let's not waste the stuff we spend hours, days sort of making. So that, that's sort of limit that. Limit meat and dairy. So take that down. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of it completely, but use it as a treat rather than as an everyday necessity and eat local and organic. So kind of where you live, what you eat and how you get places, I think are the three really practical places you can start. There's been a lot of progress made when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion, but there is still so much to do, as highlighted here by Andy Davis, Roberta Luca, and Gary Stewart who shares his personal experience of dealing with racism and discrimination as a gay black man. Advancing social mobility and DNI in the startup world, these are topics that I know we're both passionate about. Given everything that's going on in the world, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I know you created this, the, the Black Report to examine the, the landscape for black founders in the 2020s. And it does paint a shocking but unfortunately a not that surprising picture so anyone that hasn't heard of it do you mind telling us a bit about the black report and some of the issues at hand and, and some of your findings from it sure so the black report is a report that i created last year so we launched the first black report last year and it's a um, report on early stage black founders in the uk the first and it doesn't necessarily matter that, it's the, that it was the first but um because i want to say that we didn't do it because there was no data on black founders. That's not why it started. Because, right? yes, there's no data. Yes, there was no data on black people generally in the UK. I literally did it. Again, I've been a founder my whole life. And I talked to founders 24-7, and I realized that every founder feels alone in their journey. You don't understand this, right? Every founder feels alone in their journey. Founders, listen, everyone feels alone. But there are so many other people going through the same experiences as us. So I just said, I want to create a report that told us as to who black founders are, what their businesses are, how they were raised, who their teams are, investors are, and their why behind it. And I think, um, so the, the purpose was just insights, realistic insights as to who black founders are and perspectives for current and future black founders. And that was why. And yes, on top of that, there was always the added value of the wider ecosystem, it's serving them. And a few people external to it, a few like large institutions got involved and they asked me to speak at their... Um, at their all-hands meetings for their staff and their exec team meetings and stuff. And so they were super interested in black entrepreneurship, especially given the race crisis that happened last year. But I think we did it for founders, and I think that's why you should always stay true. That's the thing, right? Just always stay mission-driven and true, and if you do that, the best work will get produced. And I'm very grateful for all the nice things that have been said about the Black Report. And when I look at it, I think, oh, this can be so much better, <laughs> and it will be this year. But I appreciate that. It's a great piece of work, and I'm so proud of the team behind it as well. Yeah, amazing. Well, huge hats off to you. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an important document. And um, Were there any particular things that you would highlight from it that you think our listeners should hear about and be aware of? Firstly, I think, I think there's a few, uh, a few highlights for me personally. I think one is that black founders build diverse teams. This is something I've always known, but when we got to put the data together, we got to, we got to see it. So um, 40% of all founders are female when it comes to black, black startups, which is incredible. When it comes to all male versus all female teams, 42% of all, of, all of all teams are female versus 40% 40 are male, and the rest being a mixed gender. And it's even the same thing with staff, right? We've got 46% of staff are female. I think those numbers are just unheard of in the, in the industry. 
And it shows that black founders build diverse teams, and that just happens to be, the, and that's something that I assumed, but um, the data now tells us that that's the truth. Something else, I think black founders have diverse investors. And I think this is this more speaks to the diverse investors piece, actually. Like, the more diverse the investor base is, and the world of investors is, the more opportunity diverse entrepreneurs get. Because um, if I look at the data, uh, people of color, the investors were 36%, black investors 32%, and female investors 25%. Again, these numbers are unheard of, and I imagine it will increase year on year as um, more diverse people get access to capital and exposure to this world and access to deals as well. And black founders and diverse founders find these investors as well. And that whole world opens up as it's doing every single month. We're doing the work to make sure of that. Those are some highlights. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, and you've alluded to it, and I think th- things are changing, thankfully, and you're playing a, you know, right at the forefront of, of shifting the dial when it comes to this. But there are still many obstacles, particularly for black and ethnic minority founders. What one piece of advice would you give them? They're listening to this now. They're inspired by some of the things you're saying. W- what advice do you have for them? You So you aren't alone, right? And um, what that means is, is that there are so many diverse founders now who have, who have built teams, solved massive problems and, and raised money and, and who are succeeding. You aren't alone. Go find those and everyone's open. Everyone's open to helping everyone, all of us. So go and get connected to them and whatever you need, just ask. You'd be very surprised, right? I think like with diverse individuals, we, we're also open to supporting each other because we know how hard it is for us. And we know that we, like, for someone like myself, I didn't have any help, like, coming up, right? Because these communities didn't exist. It was when it was 2009, 2010. The startup ecosystem in London didn't really exist. So, um, but now that all these things do, communities exist. Just go out there, find people, and so I'll say, I'll say two, so two things. Find people and ask, and ask for help because you'll get it. And then I think the second piece is just do the work. You'd be so surprised. So many people get caught up in all these things, right? Like, I really, really appreciate if it's business inside of it, it's Forbes, if it's whoever, but it's just about doing the work. I, I don't look for any of these things. I don't look for anything. Um, again, maybe I'm just a basic boy from Barking who um, doesn't need too much. But um, I think I just focus on doing the work every second of every single day. And for years, I always tell people, like, we just focus on value. We just focus on the work. We focus on value. That's all that matters. Everything else will build around us. And forever, people around 10x10 and other places are always, always like, what are you talking about? You have to go and do these other things, you have to seek it out. And then I think we've all seen now that <laughs> things just come to be. If you just focus on doing the work and, the, and you focus on value, everything else will build around you. So that's what I would say. No, thanks, Andy. It's great advice. And just on the other side of the equation, what can companies do to improve DNI and include, particularly the inclusivity piece with their teams? So <laughs> here's one thing I think everyone should do. Find a diverse individual. So, so find a diverse colleague, person in your life, or founder, and make the goal of that relationship their progress. Just one person. Just one person. And commit to it for a year. And give yourself quarterly goals for that, with that person. And the only goal of that relationship, this new format of the relationship, is their progress. And trust me, if everyone does that, or even enough people do it, the needle will move significantly. 100%. If we would just take one person and make sure that we just support them and the goal of that relationship is progress, things will move significantly. Love that. And it plays so much into what this podcast is all about, mentorship. Like we can all do it and I think we should all do it. But for those that need it particularly, like go beyond your world and make sure you're helping others that, that you know, might need some And one person is simple and it's accessible. One person, and that's what you're all about, mentorship. One, it's one person and it isn't too much commitment. You can literally meet for an hour a month or an hour every quarter an hour every quarter just support them but make sure your the goal of that relationship is their progress that's your goal personally i think there are many levels to that right there's the individual level company level society level if i look from the individual level perspective what we need to do is is to basically step up we need to be better leaders, be better listeners, be a challenger, you know, to say no companies that we work with on hiring, challenge them. No, that's not good enough. We need diversity here on the candidates that, you, that you're sending. 
and create a culture that is inclusive, right? And, and make sure that people know that they are welcome there. And you do that via the way that you portray your, yourself on your website, on events that you attend. And, you know, like your, your HR, everyone who's connecting somehow to the wider world. So I think that uh, we need to step up on that, on that perspective. On the more of a, of a company level, I think there are some things to bear in mind. And I came across this um, psychology kind of reference, which is called attribution theory. I don't know if you heard about that. And the attribution theory basically shows that, again, generalizing, right? Or typically, men, when they communicate their successes, they attribute the successes to themselves, and when they communicate failures, they attribute to others something that they cannot control. And women are the, the opposite. When we talk about successes, we say, oh, it was my team, it was the environment, it was whatever, right? My support. And they don't attribute to themselves. And they do the opposite side with failures, right? And I think as a company, we need to perceive those nuances of communication and so we can give, you know, the, the right incentives and the right training and the right, you know, sometimes a pep talk to say, hey, you, you're totally diminishing yourself. You were responsible for that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I had yeah, these pep totally. talks with, with, with women before I boss. It was like, no, that was you. If you weren't there leading that project and that, you know, campaign it wouldn't get to, you know, the amazing things that we got. And, and so I think it, it's, that's very important for us to, to, to understand that level in a company perspective, right? And then society, there are so many things. Like it starts from uh, parental leave, right? It's like childcare. You, you still, we still, still in the UK, we have a, a very discrepancy between maternity leave and paternity leave. And so, how do we offset that in the company? At Boston right now, we have uh, one, we look at the primary carer. So if you're the primary carer, you're going to have the same maternity leave length. And two, the paternity leave is three months. It's not like two weeks or whatever it is in, in the UK right now. So, so those things, I think, you know, you start balancing things out from a gender perspective and then, you know, you go into everything else about race and, and nationalities and everything that you have to do to, to accommodate and to create a, a company that is, uh, is welcoming people from all over the world and all, all genders and, and types and whatever. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's, it's 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 brilliant. It's great to hear what you guys have done in that respect. I think it's um, there's definitely a movement to improving some of these things that have, frankly, been been pretty shoddy for a long time. And um, uh, so I think I think we're making some progress, but there is lots more to be done. I think you're right. It, it starts at a societal level, but every one of us, you know, that, that run companies can also kind of do our bit to move things forward just one more thing that i i think it's important for that and you feel free to include it or not but i know it's been said multiple times about the the importance of role models right and it became like everyone talks about the importance of role models but it is fundamental it's fundamental the reason why I'm a high achiever and I believe I'm going to make things happen regardless of my gender, regardless of my, my nationality, is because I grew up with a very strong person who raised me. My mom is a mega high achiever. So I was seeing that, you know, that was possible as I was growing up. But the reality is that not everyone in the world has that strong role model in their lives. And so we all are role models either we want it or not. So it's very important for us to be communicating what we're doing as much as doing what we're doing. I completely agree. And that, that is exactly why we need to see more women at the, uh, on boards. We need to see more black VCs uh, and, and people of different ethnicity and sexual orientation in positions of power and authority. And it just, it needs to be the norm because our society is so diverse you know, our businesses need to be as well. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I, it's something we're having a lot of conversations with our clients about at the moment when it comes to exec search. And I think, yeah, we can all play our part to, to move that forward. I personally have never really felt racism or discrimination, not because it doesn't exist, but probably because I prefer not to see it. So the thing is, let me unpack it. I mean, I've heard people say things to me that are racist. 
but it's almost like it just doesn't even touch me because I have a strong enough sense of self that I understand that the defect is with the other person, not with me. Right. So I think that's the way I approach it. Like people can call me whatever they want to. And like they have a lot of different ways they can be anti-gay. They can be anti-black. They can be anti-immigrant. They can be, you know, colonial in their thinking, whatever. Lots of different kind of options to kind of attack me if they wanted to. The thing is, I wouldn't really care that much because I'm like, I know who I am. and I know what I can do. And the other person is the one that looks like the deficient person to me, not me. Now, of course, that takes a bit of time to develop that sense of confidence. And I think that my parents, you know, my aunt, when I was growing up, she had a phrase. And I think it was like good that they told me this when I was like, maybe about like eight. You know, it was like, Gary, don't forget, you're as good as any, you're better than many, and you're inferior to none. And I feel like because that was kind of like inculcated in me at a very early age, even as I was growing up in the Bronx, I didn't really understand that we were in the Bronx. I was like, this is just home. You know what I mean? Like, I never internalized any of these things that people thought. And if I did, then I kind of figured out how to kind of remove them relatively quickly. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm just saying, don't let other people define you, right? Define yourself, give yourself that power. And whenever you meet people who want to try and take away that power, screw them. Like, let them know that they can go right to hell because at the end of the day, I don't give anybody else the power to kind of define or demean me. I think that generally the problem with diversity is that people conceive of difference as risk and not as opportunity, right? So, you know, I've heard like one VC say to me like, oh, you know, well, if we hired women and minorities, you know, venture capital is risky enough, like we'd be taking an additional risk. And I'm like, implicit within that assumption is the notion that because I'm black or because a person's a woman, that she's a riskier proposition than you. And I said to him, if I look at my CV and I look at your CV and I look at like what my track record is and your track record is, why, why are you the safe bet? Actually, I'm the safer bet because I've actually accomplished mm. more, right? And people are like, you know, a bit perturbed when you kind of put it out like that. But it is like, you can't basically start with a presumption of my inferiority. Yeah. Particularly when it is a, a black and white question, not literally, literally, well, in this case, but also figuratively, we can just look at the track record. Like we're, you know, so I don't, I, that's, that's my number one thing. We have to get over this presumption that if you take a woman or you take a person of color, they're inferior and therefore you're taking an additional risk, but you're doing it because you're a good charitable person. I don't want to be your charity case and I don't yeah. need to be either. Right. That's number one. And then what can companies do about it after they get rid of that implicit assumption? I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.